Job chapter 22. Before I read it, one of the things, if you've been here very long, you know that convictionally, we always start our, our sermon with a reading from God's Word because that's really how God's voice is heard to us. So we show respect for that. We stand for that. Those types of things. This is an interesting one because the chapter we're reading is part of the book of Job, and Job has been having a conversation with his three friends, and his three friends are putting forth a less than complete view of God. They're actually putting forth error. Now, God, in his inspired word, has allowed us to see that perspective. So when I read this, you're going to be hearing the wrong ideas that God has inspired us to hear so that we can think them through, if that makes sense. So I just wanted to set that up for the reading. And let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Job chapter 22, in reply to Job. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, Can a man be profitable to God? Surely he was wisest profitable to himself. Is it any pleasure to the Almighty if you are in the right? Or is it any gain to him? If you make your way blameless, it is for fear of him that he reproves you. Sorry, is it for fear of him that he reproves you and enters into judgment with you? Is not your evil abundant? There is no end to your iniquities. For you have exacted pledges of your brothers for nothing and stripped the naked of their clothing. You've given no water to the weary to drink and you've withheld bread from the hungry. The man with power possessed the land, and the favored man lived in it. You have sent widows away empty, and the arms of the fatherless were crushed. Therefore, snares are all around you, and sudden terror overwhelms you, or darkness so that you cannot see, and a flood of water covers you. Is not God high in the heavens? See the highest stars, how lofty they are. But you say, what does God know? Can he judge through the deep darkness? Thick clouds veil him so that he does not see, and he walks on the vault of heaven. Will you keep to the old way that wicked men have trod? They were snatched away before their time. Their foundation was washed away. They said to God, depart from us. And what can the Almighty do to us? Yet he filled their houses with good things. But the counsel of the wicked is far from me. The righteous see it and are glad. The innocent one mocks at them, saying, Surely our adversaries are cut off, and what they left the fire has consumed. Agree with God and be at peace. Thereby good will come to you. Receive instruction from his mouth and lay up his words in your heart. If you return to the Almighty, you'll be built up. If you remove injustice far from your tents, if you lay gold in the dust or the gold of Ophir among the stones of the torrent bed, then the Almighty will be your gold and your precious silver. For then you will delight yourself in the Almighty and lift up your face to God. You will make your prayer to him and he will hear you and you will pay your vows. You will decide on a matter, and it will be established for you. And light will shine on your ways. For when they are humbled, you say, it is because of pride. 
but he saves the lowly. He delivers even the one who is not innocent, who will be delivered through the cleanness of your hands. This is, uh, let's be seated as we pray. God, I am aware of my own weakness, the limits of my own understanding, the limits of my own ability to uh, explain and explain clearly. And I think we're all aware of our limits, our limits to hear your voice well and to be attentive, the limits even to focus and concentrate for uh, these 35 minutes and the, the limits of ourselves to having heard your word actually go and live in light of it and so just collectively we want to acknowledge right now that we need your help for what we're about to do we know we're going to be encountering the word of almighty god your word and we need your help help us all to listen by your spirit work amongst us we pray in jesus name amen On July 13, 2010, a prominent television host on one of the main American networks said these words on what was normally a political show. You cannot earn your way to heaven. You can't. There is no deed, no random act of kindness, no amount of money to spread around others that earns you a trip to heaven. It can't happen. It's earned by God's grace alone, by believing that Jesus died on the cross for you. That is what Christians believe. At the time, I was pastoring in Texas, and as a result of those words, many were convinced that the man who had spoken these words was an evangelical. He must be a born-again Christian. Even though they knew that the man who spoke those words was a professed Mormon. Now, just for you who don't know, Mormons believe that Jesus is one of the many spirit babies that God gave birth to, or God's wife gave birth to. They believe that through faith in Jesus, they can become gods who will in turn give birth to other spirit babies who will in turn be Jesus to other planets in the ever-expanding universe. Now that is far from evangelical Christianity. And it's patently not what the Bible teaches. It is a false religion. But some of the people in my church were fooled because he used language that sounded right. Now Mormons have mastered that art. You can even say it in their name. They, they don't call themselves Mormons. They call themselves the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Because false teachers use right-sounding language. And that shouldn't surprise us. The Bible tells us false teachers are wolves in sheep's clothing. The Bible tells us that the devil himself, quote, disguises himself as an angel of light. So I want to be very clear on this. False teachers say true things. If they came out wearing a villain's mask with sinister smiles, 
nobody would follow them. And Job's three friends that he's been interacting with are classic examples of this. Now we learned at the end of Job that God's anger burns against them because of what they said. So we know from the book of Job that what they say is not honoring to God. It is false. And in many respects, the book of Job was written to debunk the false teaching that's represented by Job's friends. But when we look, at least at a superficial way, at the words of his friends, they can sound orthodox enough. So like in our passage, we have verse 12. Is not God high in the heavens? See the highest stars, how lofty they are. Or verses 23 through 25. If you return the Almighty, you'll be built up. If you remove injustice far from your tents, if you lay the gold and the dust and the gold of Ophir among the stones of the torrent bed, then the Almighty will be your gold and your precious silver. I mean, you read that and you say, hear, hear. That sounds right. Do you know that there is one verse that the New Testament quotes from the book of Job? And it's actually a quotation from one of Job's three friends. In chapter 5, verse 13, Eliphaz says, He catches the wise in their own craftiness, and the schemes of the wily are brought to a quick end. It's quoted in 1 Corinthians 3.11. Now it's interesting because Eliphaz proves to be an illustration of his own point. Because he (laughs) thinks he's wise and ends up being destroyed. And I think that's why Paul chose to quote him. But the saying itself is actually true. Job's friends say true things. But Job's friends are profoundly and decidedly wrong. And the book of Job is attacking the error that these friends embrace. An error that sadly is all too common today as well. And it's an error marked by three wrong views. I want to lay these out for you. These are important. They're they're here in chapter 22, but I've chosen chapter 22 as kind of indicative of the wider argument these three friends make in this section of the book of Job. And so these three wrong views are pervasive to their thought. The first, and most foundational, their worldview is fundamentally man-centered instead of God-centered. Their worldview is fundamentally man-centered instead of God-centered. That is to say, they think that God is there to serve them instead of seeing themselves as there to serve God. First wrong view. Second wrong view. Their highest value is their own comfort and ease instead of being right with God. What they value most is their own comfort and ease instead of being right with God. That is to say, they care more about what God can give them than they do about being in a right relationship with God. They're like the friend who uses you instead of values you, regardless of what you can give them. And third... They advocate advocate righteousness as a means to material blessing 
instead of as a good in itself. They advocate righteousness, but as as a means to the blessings you can get from it instead of as a good in itself. That is to say, they encourage people to be righteous because of the reward God will give you for being righteous instead of encouraging people to be righteous because it brings honor to God, because it's good in and of itself and brings joy just in doing what he has declared for us to do. Now, I have one goal for the sermon today. And that is to show the utter failure of this theology. And we'll do so as we look closely. I think it's what God's Word does as we look closely at Eliphaz's speech here in chapter 22. In verses 1 to 11, we'll see his wrong view of God. In verses 12 to 20, we'll see how that leads to a wrong view of Job. And in verses 21 to 30... We'll see how it leads to a wrong solution to Job's problem. Wrong view of God, wrong view of Job, wrong solution to Job's problem. So let's look at verses 1 to 11, a wrong view of God. In verses 2 and 3, Eliphaz comes right out of the gate, and his questions are intended to teach Job that we don't exist to profit God. Our wisdom isn't any aid to God. Our righteousness doesn't do him any good. Verse 2, can a man be profitable to God? No. Instead, he says, surely he is wise as profitable to himself. Is it any pleasure to the Almighty if you are in the right? Or is it any gain if you make your ways blameless? See? He's saying it doesn't benefit God that you're righteous or wise or blameless. In Eliphaz's view, God is some distant being who is unaffected by how we live. He's only there to reward good and punish evil. But said good and evil have no effect on him. Now we know from the book of Job that this is false, don't we? Because at the very beginning of the book of Job, what is God doing? He is rejoicing in the righteousness of Job. And then when Satan comes to taunt God, God uses Job as an example to gain glory over Satan. And when Job continues to be righteous in the face of Satan's attacks, God gains glory over Satan. Satan is shown in his weakness. But that's not how Eliphaz views things. He is convinced we are not there to profit God. Instead, God is there to profit us. And that's what Eliphaz's third question there in verse 4 brings into view. Is it for fear of him that he reproves you or enters into judgment with you? Is not your evil abundant? There is no end to your iniquities. Your hard situation, he's saying, your hard situation, Job, is because you did not fear God. If you had feared God, none of these bad things would have happened. Your righteousness won't profit God, but your failure to fear him properly adversely affects you. You get it? You don't benefit God, but he can benefit you if you use him correctly. That's Eliphaz's basic message. And it's a message 
that sounds great when you're promising people their best lives now. When you're telling them that God has five steps to their financial success. When you're laying out for them how to have perfectly behaved children and and a vibrant marriage. Sounds great. Just do these things and God benefits you. Boom. But this message collapses in the face of the brokenness of this world. Today, when these kind of formulas are presented, they leave us with no way to explain evil. To explain the suffering and the brokenness we experience. Now, today we do it a little differently than Job's friends do. We don't blame the sufferer like they did. But these formulas leave us with no way of processing our pain. Either we didn't get it right because the book or the preacher or whatever it was promised me that God's going to do all these great things for me and now I'm having hardship so I must have heard him wrong. I must not have done it right. Either I didn't do it right or... God hasn't delivered on his end of the bargain. God has let me down. And so the formula fails. In Job's day, the formula broke down as well. This kind of formula where God is in service of me, where man is at the center of the world and God is serving me, this kind of formula will always break down in the face of unexplained suffering. If God is something, in Job's day, if God is something that you use to improve your life, then your suffering must stem from your failure to do what, to, to use God the right way. And Job's friends are convinced of this as it relates to Job. They, they think of God, we've talked about, they think of God as a giant lever in the sky. Live righteously, get blessing. Live unrighteously, get suffering. And so in his friends' minds, they have this equation for Job that goes something like this. He has this major suffering, and so he must be a major sinner. And that's exactly where Eliphaz goes in verses 5 through 10. And this is where we see the true heart in Eliphaz and the three friends in whole. He just lays into his friend, accusing him with blistering attacks for heinous sins. Verse 5 kind of gives a general heading. There is no end to your iniquities. And then in verse 6, the first half, you've exacted pledges of your brothers for nothing. He's accused of taking advantage of those in need by taking a pledge that he didn't even need to take. That kind of practice would have been common amongst people who were sinister and evil in that day. And God, in the pages of the Old Testament, rails against that kind of practice. It's, it's like opening a cash money store in the poorest neighborhood. It's just designed to exploit those with need for your own monetary gain. And then the second half of verse 6. Strip the naked of the clothing. He's, they say he's taking advantage of the poor so much that he's stealing the last pair of clothes off of them. You think of the homeless man 
and you're going at him in the middle of the night, and because of your position, you take his very last pair of clothes off of him. That's what they're saying he's doing. Verse 7, he's saying he's refused to care for those dying of hunger and thirst. One of the hallmarks of biblical righteousness in both Old and New Testaments is how you care for the poor. And Job, according to Eliphaz, though he has so much wealth, has refused to take care of the most needy. Verse 9 presses this point further. Sent the widows away empty. The arms of the fatherless were crushed. If God has a unique heart for the poor, one thing that becomes kind of the, at the head of that care for the poor is a care for widows and orphans. Maybe some of you in this room Well, I know some of you in this room are widows. And you feel alone, and you feel how stacked the world can be against you when you're in that kind of state of being alone, particularly if you're a younger widow. And maybe some of you are fatherless as well. And you know the pain. God has a particular love for you. All throughout the pages of Scripture, In the New Testament, religion that is pure and undefiled is this. To look after orphans and widows in their distress. He loves you. But Eliphaz says that Job has refused even to help the fatherless and the widow. He characterizes as the arms of the orphans being crushed by him. Now, we need to be clear. Eliphaz did not witness Job doing any of these things. He couldn't have. He couldn't have had firsthand knowledge of this because we know from the beginning of the book of Job that Job is blameless and upright, turning away from evil. So what has compelled Eliphaz to make these kind of accusations that Job is the antithesis of the kind of man that God has called him to be? The only thing that can drive him to do that is his bankrupt theology. And verses 10 through 11 make this clear. Or sorry, 11 and... Uh, oh, I'm in the wrong chapter. That's why it's not 10 and 11. There it is. There we go. Therefore, 10 and 11. I'm looking for the word therefore. It's there in verse 10. At, because you've done all things, therefore snares are all around you and sudden terror overwhelms you or darkness that you cannot see and a flood of water covers you. These bad things that have happened to you are as a result of this. Only such terrible acts of evil that I've just laid out could have warranted such terrible suffering, is how Eliphaz thinks. Eliphaz, quote, knows Job did these kinds of evil things simply on the basis of Job's horrible suffering. In, in Eliphaz's mind, Job, or God is simply a celestial deterrent to doing evil and an incentive for doing good. God exists for us. And this false view of God leads leads to this kind of unhealth. It did in Job's day, and it does today. Brothers and sisters, we need to allow this passage 
which is just blatantly crawling with the failure and the bankruptcy of that kind of theology. We need to allow this pa- passage to inculcate us against the per- inculcate us against the pervasive idea that God exists for us instead of the other way around. And Job's wrong view, or Eliphaz's wrong view of God leads to a wrong view of Job himself. Now you already get that sense in verses 5 to 10. He assumes all these horrible things about him. But it also becomes even more clear in verses 12 through 20. A wrong view of Job. You see, there's a class of evil people, and there have been throughout history, who say, I can do evil because God doesn't really know what's going on. He doesn't see what I'm doing in this kind of underhanded way or this secret way. So as long as I maintain a certain austere or a certain veneer of righteousness, I can kind of keep on with my sinning. God won't know. God won't see that. And that's exactly what Eliphaz says Job thinks. He accused Job of thinking he can get away with evil without God noticing. And he tells Job that though such a person may prosper for a time, verse 16, destruction will come swiftly, like a house that loses its foundation in a flood. What had happened to Job? He'd lost it all swiftly. He is talking about Job here. He's saying, this is you. And he says, because of this, people are actually right for rejoicing at your comeuppance. The innocent, perhaps the innocent children, who Job just last time, our last sermon, he was saying, the children make a mockery of me, are justified in their mocking. Now, Job has never said anything like this. He is clearly putting words in Job's mouth. Job never says that he thinks he can get away with sin because God doesn't see. I mean, this is a classic straw man argument. You know, to make a straw man, you formulate your opponent's position in a way that's inaccurate but easy to defeat. And Eliphaz does just that. Because Eliphaz's wrong view of God renders him incapable of actually listening to Job. It skews his perspective so that he cannot properly understand Job. It skews his assessment of Job's very character. Job is saying, I I haven't done these great sins and yet I am suffering. And I insist I haven't done any of those wrong things. But I do want to figure out how do I get right with God? But Eliphaz's theology is Well, you want material blessing. It's been taken away. That must be because you've wronged God and done something bad. So we have to fix that so you can get your blessings back. He's completely missed the point. And so what he assumes Job is doing, even though Job has never said anything, is he assumes Job is saying, oh, it's okay that I did bad things and I'm going to try and dupe you just like I've duped God. He says, you're not going to be able to do that. But that's not what Job has said. One of the great dangers of bad theology is it causes us to view the world through a skewed lens. 
And that skewed lens can cause us to evaluate other people inaccurately. And that is the case with Eliphaz. To look at verses 1 through 20 as a whole, Job just has missed, or Eliphaz has just misdiagnosed the problem. He believes Job suffers so because he has sinned so. And this wrong diagnosis springs from a wrong view of God. Eliphaz believes our righteousness is ultimately a means to bringing us blessing. It doesn't benefit God. It benefits us. God then is there to serve us and not the other way around. Now, Eliphaz may say some true things, but his fundamental view of God is wrong. Now, before we move on to verses 21 to 30, I just want to say two things. First, I think you need to put a star on chapter 22. If you're one of those who writes in your Bible, put a star in chapter 22 of your Bible because you can't understand, you know, there's all these speeches between Job and his friends and you can't really understand his speeches, the other speeches of the other friends or Eliphaz's other speeches unless you read chapter 22 because this is the first time they kind of lay the case out against Job in specifics. They're always just alluding, well, you're a sinner too. And in our evangelical lens, you know, where we know, hey, we're all sinners, you can kind of read it and be like, yeah, that's right. You know, Job's a sinner like all of us. And yeah, maybe God is allowing this suffering kind of as a discipline to him to, to just, and even if it's not, it's good to just, in those times of suffering, examine your own heart. So his friends are saying things that are good and right. No, go to chapter 22. They don't think he's just a sinner like everybody else. I'm a sinner, you're a sinner, we're all sinners. No, that's not what their view is. They think he is the most heinous kind of sinner. Somebody terrible that they are right to rejoice at his calamity and mock because he's been so bad and yet feigned righteousness the whole time. So read that back into their other words so that you understand exactly what's going on. They're suggesting that Job, they're suggesting to Job that he is the most vile kind of sinner. And that's my second point. So the first, the first thing I wanted to pause and say was you just got to start chapter 22 because it helps you read everything else that Job's friends say. And the second thing that I want us to do before we move into 21 and 23 is just grasp what's going on here. His friends believe Job is some kind of moral monster. He's not Jimmy Churchman who though walking with God still battles pride and self-reliance. No. From their perspective, Job is a guy who rips people off callously to make another penny, even though he's already filthy rich. And he's happy to make his money off the backs of the poor, taking the little they have, and the fatherless, and the widows, robbing them of the very things they have to gain his own advantage. From their perspective, he is one bad dude. And we need to keep that in mind, their view of him, when we turn to the solution they offer. We know that Job isn't a moral monster. But if he were, as they think he is, What kind of solution do they offer to this moral monster? That's what verses 21 through 30 are. Their solution 
to the moral monster that they think Job is. Now again, like all false teachers, they say some good things. So in verse 21, they tell him to agree with God. In verse 22, they tell him to lay up God's words in your heart. In verse 23, they call him to return to the Almighty. It's good. But there's something hauntingly lacking in their solution. There is no sense of the weight of his sin. There's no gravitas, no grief. There's no owning the terrible things he's done. Simply agree with God and you'll start racking up the goods again. Verse 21, God, good will come to you. Verse 23, you'll be built up. Verse 28, the first part, you'll decide on a matter and God will get it done for you. Second half of verse 28, the path in front of you will be well lit. Come back to God's side, listen to his words, make a few vows, get rid of the gold that you gained unjustly, humble yourself, clean your hands, and the blessings start rolling in again. It's all so formulaic, so light, so trite. They're just calling on Job to acquiesce to God in order to get what he wants. But if he's really done the evil things that they suggest, they should instead be calling on Job to grieve over his sin and repent. That's why you've got to remember their view of God. Their wrong view of God leads to this wrong solution. Because in their view, God is unaffected by his unrighteousness. If he sins, it's only a problem for him, not to God. Because his sin means he doesn't get all the nice things that he should have on earth. It doesn't affect God. It profits me to be righteous. So, the only thing that needs fixing is his material situation. Which you fix by getting back on God's team. But they have a wrong view of God. Our sin, at its core, is a problem not because of how it affects us, though it's true, it has a disastrous effect on us. Our sin is a great offense because it's a sin against a holy God. He is deeply grieved over our sin. Our sin, first and foremost, is an act of rebellion against the God who made us who's good and whose ways are good. The fundamental problem with our sin is not that it makes our lives harder, though it does do that. The main problem of our sin is that it alienates us from a holy God. Eliphaz misses that. He tells Job, kiss and make up with God so the faucet of blessing can be turned back on. Now this error too is rampant today. We've lost our sense of a holy God that grieves over sin. Now today he's not so much of a, a lever in the sky. 
because he no longer punishes evil. Instead, he's more like a lever on a slot machine. You just keep pulling, pulling, pulling. Eventually, you get the jackpot. So when we invite people to come to Jesus, we talk little of sin. Instead, we tell them all the good things that can be theirs in this life and for eternity if they come to Christ. We tell them that God loved them enough to die for them. We tell them that all they need to do is accept God's gift of love and forgiveness. Now, all those things are true. God loves you and me enough to send His Son to die for us. And there's great blessing in this life and eternity in following Christ. But that emphasis belies a reliance on man-centered theology. You see, in the Bible, the first act of coming to God, the first act of coming to Christ, is repentance. We need to know that we've committed high treason against God. We need to grasp that when we try to make, make our own lives for us and say, I'm a pretty good guy, I can live this way, I'll do... That when we've lived that way, hey, I've got it all together. I don't really need God. I mean, he's, I, he's exists, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make the, that we're actually rebelling against God. It makes us enemies of his good kingdom. One bite of fruit in the garden, one act of rebellion against God, unleashed all this foul mess upon the earth. And yet we do those solitary acts of rebellion against God over and over and over again. And we need to see the offenses we've committed. We don't need to just acquiesce to God so we can start getting the blessings He's promised us. We need to cry out to God and repent of our sin. We saw that Eliphaz's wrong view of God led to a wrong understanding of Job. And now we've seen that his wrong view of God leads to a wrong solution to the problem of sin. This chapter shows how fraudulent Eliphaz's wrong view is in the face of Job's intense suffering. The friend's worldview turns them into the very kind of moral monsters that they accuse Job of being. If you can imagine someone who's gone through that kind of suffering, to hear that kind of accusation, even though they've been innocent, only a moral monster would do that. And yet they're driven by their theology. But consider the biblical alternative to the intense suffering that's in this world that many, many even here today, go through. What if God isn't a divine lever in the sky or a slot machine existing simply to make our lives better so long as we live a certain way? What if He's actually concerned about building a kingdom of people who are meek, and humble, and loving, who have an intimate understanding of His grace and know His character quite well, so intimately 
that they begin to reflect his character. And what if the suffering of this present world, which is only a blip in comparison to eternity, what if the suffering of this present world was allowed by God sovereignly, even though it's an aspect, it's an overflow of our rebellion, was allowed by God to help us, to help shape us into those kind of people who know Him better, know His grace better, are more meek and more humble and more loving and are, are clinging to Him all the more. What if He allows us to taste brokenness in this world? Yes, it's because of a rebellion against Him, but He allows it because it gives us a taste of what a world in rebellion against Him is like so that for eternity, we're in a world that's perfect. We've kind of had a taste of what we're safe from. Or what if He allows it to help refine our character, to make us more and more Christ-like? What if He allows it so that we can know the sweetness of His fatherly care? For us in deeper and fuller ways. What if God sees that the brokenness in this world is just part or, or, or is, is seen also in the brokenness or the poison, the rebellion in our own hearts? And He was so broken over that that He sent His Son to deliver us from the bondage to sin and death. And what if that Son tasted the full cup of this world's poison, but also the full cup of the poison that's in our own heart, our sin? He drank the full cup of that and bore the wrath in our place so that we who embrace Him can experience His grace and know Him in deeper and fuller ways. Do you see, that gets your eyes off of God is here to make my life better and how does the good news of the Gospel fit into that? And it puts it on. What is God doing in this world? How do I fit into that? And how is what is God's doing in this world affect how I think about my suffering. It takes man from the center of the theology and replaces God at the center of the theology. And it's a worldview that's put forth in the Bible. And I believe there is no other worldview put forward amongst men that holds up so well in the face of unjust suffering. So, if that's the case, why do so many churches today repeat Eliphaz's errors? If the so-called Christian message has you at the center and God in service of you, it's not biblical and it won't hold up. If the so-called Christian message emphasizes your comfort and ease over being right with God, it's not biblical. It will not hold up. And if the so-called Christian message encourages you to be righteous primarily because of the psychological and material benefits that flow from it, it's not biblical. It will not hold up. Some of you are here today on the edge of Christianity, and you've been exposed to this kind of teaching that I'm critiquing, and you think, ugh, there's something that just doesn't sit right with that, with me about that. 
or you've been burned by it. You embraced it, you believed it, you took it on, and then you realized how bankrupt it was. God has given us chapter 22 of Job so you can see his view of it. It's a fraud. It's to be rejected. Ah, you say. But these teachers say so much that's good and helpful. It's okay for me to read them or listen to them. Just eat the fish and spit out the bones, right? Perhaps. Perhaps. But oftentimes, these true words are built on a foundation that's entirely dangerous. Those true words are the bait hiding a hook that can ruin your soul. Such was the theology that the book of Job set out to debunk. We need then a Copernican revolution. We need to tear ourselves from the center of the spiritual universe and return God to the center. You know, prior, prior to Copernicus, the scientists made plenty of right observations about the stars and the moon. But despite certain right statements about celestial phenomenon, they were altogether off. Their right statements had a wrong foundation. They were built on top of erroneous assumptions. And such is the case today. But in our case, the danger of the errors is far worse. Look where it took Job's friends. They eviscerate Job's character. They terribly misread the situation. They puff themselves up with a false sense of righteousness. And they end up offering trite solutions to the profound problem of sin. You can't read Job 22 without seeing the colossal failure that springs from their skewed views of God and how this world works. This kind of man-centered theology creates people with hollow souls. And the results are spiritually damaging, not just scientifically wrong. So let's, as a church, join the Copernican revolt. Let's restore God to the center of our theology. Let's care more about being right with Him than our own comfort. Let's stop using righteousness as some sort of tool to obligate God to to help us and instead view it as a good part of what we were created to do by a good God.